0: Well, good morning everyone. Can I add to the welcome that uh, Rodney gave you at the beginning of the service and thank those who have taken part in our service thus far. Some months ago, a certain person in the congregation who notices these things uh, sent me news of a website advertising a very interesting product. Inspirational Scripture Shoe Inserts. You can't read the writing, so I'll read it for you. Designed to aid in the daily prayer, meditation, and growth of a strong spiritual relationship with Christ. In souls, S O U L S. Get it? Yes, okay. In souls are designed to provide a tangible support to assist Christians to literally walk in the word of the Lord. Worn in the right shoe, each one provides a related scripture and affirmation. To enhance the spiritual walk with God, the inserts help one to stand on his word, meditating on it day and night. Those who wear shoes at night (laughs) time. Inserts may be alternated daily to help cultivate the Word of God in your life. Look for other insoles to cover a variety of topics from trust, obedience, patience and redemption to marriage, work and body image. Now you may say quite rightly in my opinion, but I apologise if you're wearing one. (laughs) That is ridiculous. What a waste of time. But I'll tell you something else, which is an equal waste of time. In fact, a worse waste of time. Hearing God's word without putting it into practice. And that's not just my opinion. Jesus compared the person who hears his word that fails to put it into practice to a stupid man who built his house on sand only to see it swept away by a storm. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, made the same point in a letter he wrote warning his fellow Christians about the danger of deception. This is what he says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so, deceive yourselves, do what it says. Few of us, I think, would seriously believe that putting a shoe, in, uh, a scripture in our shoe, is going to be of much spiritual benefit. But many of us believe that listening to sermons in Charlotte Chapel, studying the scriptures with people in our fellowship groups, and reading the Bible daily is of great spiritual benefit. But James says, unless you put it into practice, what we hear is of no benefit whatsoever. Or in the two key words in this letter we're studying in James, faith means acting upon God's word, which then produces evidence, what James calls works. That's the title we've chosen for our series. Faith. That works. And this morning our focus is this. James says that only faith, hearing, which is hearing plus action, will produce the life that pleases God. So that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. But as we think about it, let me simply say you may understand everything I've said. You may even agree with everything I've said. You may disagree. It will have no benefit whatsoever if you don't put it into practice. So, as I've done wrestling with it this week, listen to what God is saying to you this morning and make sure you put it into practice immediately. Otherwise, it's a waste of time and you're fooling yourself. Okay, James 1, 19-27. You need the Bible in front of you because we're going to look closely at the text. It's page 1213. If you... Don't have a Bible, there are a few Bibles. If you can't see one, just wave your hand. There are plenty around, and those who come regularly bring their own Bibles. Well, some of them do. Struck me actually, this is is nothing to the sermon, but coming in on the bus today, have you noticed how Muslims all over the world, wherever they are, they stop to pray and face Mecca? And everybody says, wow, that's really religious. Here's a thought why don't we carry our Bibles more regularly? I've started trying to try and do it, and sit on the bus, and instead of reading the Metro newspaper only, the free paper, just sit and read your Bible. Okay? It's just thought. It's nothing to do with the passage, right? Well, it is. It's putting the Bible into practice, all right. Okay. Now, as we come to this passage together, with God's help, um, the two key words in James, if you've studied it and are studying it, in your groups, and I'm encouraging you to go to the groups. I wasn't saying, by the way, don't go to groups. It's great to see us studying God's Word together. What I was saying is, do that, then put it into practice together. Okay, the two key words in this letter are faith and works. And although they're not mentioned, either of those words in this section, what it's actually talking about is faith and works. You see, faith is hearing and acting upon god 's word and what he said, and the first part of this passage verses nineteen through twenty five I want to suggest this is just to help you remember it uh, that this is the focus here is the response that god expects and then the last two verses and uh, sorry david i don 't know well why we missed reading the last verse, but we will come to it uh, verse twenty seven twenty six and twenty seven um, Works are the inevitable result of responding as God expects. If you hear an act on God's word, if you put it into practice, the response that God expects, you get in the last verses, the religion that God accepts. That's what he finishes off by saying. Let's just read verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts, as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, let's start, and it's very important you get these in the right order. Alright? Let's start then with faith and the response that God accepts. If you open your Bibles again, look again at the opening part. Uh, It may seem, as you read this, and we've noticed this in James before, it's like as though James suddenly switches topics. And what you've got in verse 19, I often really think it's like he's giving dance instructions, you know? Quick, slow, slow. Alright? says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And now he begins a new section, if you read this book carefully. Whenever James says, my brothers or my dear brothers, he's, he's introducing a new topic. But it's usually related with what has gone before. He is writing generally about how we should be slow to listen to one another, quick to listen to one another, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He's uh, talking about general relationships, yes, but the background, the more general context, is responding to what God has said. Look again at what we studied last time, and you can get it on the, you can download it on the internet, or get a tape if you're interested. He finished up by saying in verse 18, He, that is God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first roots of all He has created. What he's saying is that when you receive God's word the first time, when you embrace the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it it took root in your life. It was like a seed that was planted that gave spiritual birth. God the Holy Spirit came to live within you. In the words of Jesus, you were born again, born from above. The seed has been planted in you. If you're a Christian, God's word has taken root in your life. But if it is to grow to maturity, if we are to grow to maturity as Christians, then we must continue as we began. We must continue to receive God's word. And so the phrase he used, very interesting phrase, he says, Humbly accept God's word, verse 21, planted in you. This is what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse two. This is the one I esteem, says the Lord. He was humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. See, the trouble with many people today is when we read God's word, when we hear God's word, we don't tremble. Sometimes we grumble. We tend to have a more rebellious attitude about what God has said and couldn't have really meant that, so let's try and find a way of not meaning what he actually did say. So we're quick to speak to God or about God, to him and to anyone else who will listen. And this applies applies especially in the context of what we've studied this far, when you're facing troubles and difficulties. Uh, The normal reaction is to lash out, to even become upset and angry. We are slow to listen to God, quick to speak to or about God, but behind it all often, behind that kind of attitude, lurks anger. And in many of us, anger is like a simmering volcano. You know these parts of the world where they've got a live volcano, but it doesn't erupt every day and all the time. Just from time to time, suddenly, whoosh, over it goes and everybody runs for shelter. And anger is like that. James says, If we're to respond to God's word and humbly accept it, we need to avoid anger. Why? Because it's counterproductive to the kind of life that pleases God. Look at our verses. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life, the kind of life that God wants you to lead. Why does it not produce that? Well, anger stops you hearing God's word clearly. For all the years we've lived in the manse, in Morningside, we've had a problem that we've never been able to trace or resolve. Whenever we're listening to, every morning when I get up and make the breakfast, I switch on the radio, because I like to listen to the news and find out what's happening. And about, you can't predict it, but about, often about every 15 minutes, usually when it's the bit I want to hear the sports results, they, a sudden static noise comes and it goes, shh, and it goes on for about, 30 seconds, and then when the sports results are over, it comes clear again. <laughs> Trying to work of this out, really, but <laughs> something is causing interference. Uh, it, if you can help with this, a property deacon, and if you speak to him afterwards, or, or just ring my wife and come round and tell us what the problem is. But the point is this: is that the anger is like that, isn't it? It interferes with us hearing what someone is saying to us. If you're mad with someone, you don't hear them. But more seriously, it hinders us from hearing what God is saying to us. Can I be absolutely honest and say, or direct, that some of you here, I have no doubt in the congregation of size, that there are people here in this congregation, if truth were known, who are angry with God. For whatever reason. And as God begins to speak, even as you're sitting here now, As I'm speaking to you, suddenly, you can't hear it anymore. It obscures you from hearing God's Word. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on James, which I've recommended before and I will again, Alec Mateer writes, The great talker is rarely a good listener, and never is the ear more firmly closed than when anger takes over. So, James says, avoid anger. If you're going to hear God's word and respond properly to it, first thing, avoid anger. But he says there's something else that can hinder us from hearing and responding to what God has said. Not only avoiding anger, he also says, eliminate evil. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Look more closely at what he's saying there. The word get rid is an interesting word. It's a word used in Greek for taking off your clothes. If you know the Bible, you remember that story in Acts 7? When Stephen the first martyr preached a great sermon and his hearers were so mad, they determined to kill him. So what did they do? They took off their clothes, put them by the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who eventually became Paul the Apostle. They took their clothes off and then picked up stones and stoned him to death. Now the word for taking off their clothes there is the same word. And and James, who's full of these pictures, says that's what happens, what you need to do. You need to get rid. What is it you need to get rid of? Well, the NIV translates one word with two. It says, All moral filth. The word is used in the next chapter. If you've got the Bible, just look over in chapter two and verse we'll come to this God willing in the next study. Talks about a man coming into your meetings, a poor man in shabby clothes. The word shabby there is the same word. So James is saying, if you're going to hear God's word, when you come to it, you need to take off All those things that defile you and distract you from hearing God's word. You you know, when when Hebrew scribes copied God's word, because of course they didn't have printing in those days, it was a long and laborious task. If you read what they did, every time they picked up their quilt to write God's word down, before they did it, they had a full bath and a change of clothes. Why? Because it was so important to them that God's word was so holy and precious to them. That they didn't want to defile it all themselves. Now, I'm not suggesting we do that every time we have our devotions at home or before coming to church, would help in other ways. but, But I simply ask you this morning what preparations did you make for coming here this morning? Do we take God's word seriously? We come into God's presence and say, Lord, I want to hear what you're saying this morning, but there's all sorts of things, that anger I need to get rid of. And there's the things I've done this week that I've thought and said and done that are going to stop me hearing your words. So, I want to take these things off. He says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. If you grew up like I did with the authorised version, and there's a very quaint rendering of this in the authorised version, those who may have one even this morning. It's translated as superfluity of naughtiness. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Superfluity of naughtiness. And the word superfluity means something that there's lots of around. But but he has another meaning in a different context. In Mark's account, in the feeding of the four thousand... You remember at the end of the miracle, if you know the story, Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. They ate everything that they needed. And afterwards, the disciples went round and gathered up what was left over. That's the same word used there. It partly means there was lots, but it also means what remains. So it could be translated, the evil that still remains. Now I tell you this, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what things you may have with God's help, eradicated from your life. Search around and get rid of any evil that is still present, maybe hidden in some dark recess of your life, in some locked room that no one has ever entered. Such things will hinder you from hearing God's Word. You need to be able to hear clearly if you're going to respond properly. Uh, Once a year... Sometimes twice, I go to our local surgery without fail. I go and see the nurse and get my ears syringed out. They keep getting clogged up with wax. So when we get to the level in our house, even with my hearing aids, when we get to the level where the volume on the radio or television is painfully loud for the rest of the family, then I go and get my ears... If you've had it done, it's a wonderful experience. You know, it goes gurgle, gurgle, gurgle and suddenly click, you can hear. And... and I'm told it's not a good idea, this, but anyway, there's loads of medics here We'll straighten you out afterwards, okay? But, you know, every time I go, I say, this is absolutely wonderful, I'm going to do what they told me to do. Every Sunday, I'm going to do it Sunday mornings, I'm going to put a couple of drops in each year to keep my ears clear regularly, so I don't get this build-up. You know what? I always forget. Had it done before my holidays, I've not, never done it since then. I'm getting ready again. Okay, that's so why I'm talking too loud, the guys keep the PA up and down. So, am I regularly clearing out sin from my life or is there a bit, this morning, let me ask you, is there a big buildup of spiritual wax so you can't hear God's word clearly? The test is this, how easily and clearly do you hear and understand God's word? Right now. Unless I am then I'll not be responding to what God says because I can't clearly hear what he's saying. Now, that's the negative. Avoid anger, eradicate evil. What's the positive? What should we... If we're taking off these things like clothes, what do we put on instead? Well, the Apostle Paul uses this picture of taking clothes off and putting them on in a couple of his epistles, in his letters as well. But he usually says, take off sins, vices, and put on virtues. But James here goes much more to the heart of the matter. He says, humbly accept the word planted within you, which produces the kind of life that pleases God, which alone ultimately, says James, can save you. You see, the people of Israel long ago had received God's word, but it wasn't planted in them. It was something external and they failed to keep God's law. But God promised, if you know the Old Testament, through the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, He promised a day was coming. God says, I'm going to do a radical change. I'm going to write your law on my heart. I'm going to plant it deep within you. Now, what those prophets promised, the Lord has fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If we accept it. God's word, if you're a Christian, has been planted within you. But you need to accept it regularly. The word accept is a lovely word. It means to welcome something or someone with open arms. To embrace them. What it's saying here is, when you hear God's word, embrace it. Take it to yourself and say, that's it, thank you Lord for telling me about that. I want to put that into practice. We have to humbly accept God's word. But, this is not a one-off experience. James goes on to say, you need to keep doing this as a regular exercise. You need to continually obey, and he shifts the word, and we'll see why in a moment. He shifts, he says, not only humbly accept God's word, but if you look on, he says, continuously obey God's law. And he used this lovely picture that David illustrated so well to the children, the picture of a mirror. People in those days looked in mirrors. They, they weren't as good, the mirrors, they were polished metal, unlike the, the silver-plated ones that we have that are a perfect image. But nonetheless, people knew what it was to look into a mirror. Most of us know what it is to look into a mirror. As so I look around this congregation, I can't see too many people who I'm not sure about whether they looked in a mirror this morning. And if I could see them, I'm not going to embarrass you by pointing it out. So when you look in a mirror, as David said, what do you see? Your face. Why do you look in the mirror? Well, unless you've got a problem, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all sort of thing. You look in the mirror to see what you're like and to make sure you're presentable. Maybe my face is dirty. Maybe my hair needs combing. So what do I do? I wash my face, I comb my hair. But James describes a person who looks in the mirror, sees what he's like and immediately goes away and forgets all about what he's seen. And what he's saying is obvious, really, he's saying that's the kind of person who looks in the Bible, does a quick Bible reading in the morning, reads what it says, sees his need, but if he immediately goes away and he forgets completely about what he's seen. He doesn't put it into practice. He makes no difference. He's hearing without acting. In contrast, he says, here's the right way you should look at God's Word. He says, look intently into it. It's a lovely word, this word, look intently. It's the word used in In John's Gospel, at the end of John, you remember the account of the resurrection morning when the two disciples, John and Peter, ran to the tomb because they'd heard that the body had gone. You can read it later. It's John 20, I think, verse 5, and then again in 11. And John came first, but then Peter went in ahead of him, and what did he do? He bent down and he peered carefully. He didn't just glance in and say, nobody. No, he, he looked in, and the same words used of Mary when she came. They looked at carefully. They were searching. What's the truth about this? What's really happened here? Now, that's the word that James is using here. He says, when you come to God's law, look intently into it. Try and find out the truth about it. Don't forget what you've seen, but act upon it. And he describes it. He says, look into the perfect law that gives freedom. I was intrigued to hear a report on the radio this week between the interference. Um, It's an amazing report. It said they've done a survey of all the roadworks on roads in countries in Europe and we have the best roadworks in Europe. I didn't know that. And they actually interviewed some people who'd just come off the motorway having gone through the roadworks and said, do you know we've got the best roadworks in Europe? And I tell you what, not one of them sang a hymn of praise to the roadworks. But the Old Testament is just full of praise, hymns of praise, about God's law. Not the gospel that we know, but God's law that he gave to Moses. In fact, the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is a carefully constructed 176 verse acrostic based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in praise of God's word and God's law. And the psalmist says, I love your law. It's sweeter than honey. I just delight in it. I love looking into it to find out what pleases you. I don't find many Christians do that these days. I kind of give nodding assent, don't we, to the Old Testament. We say, well, we've got something better. Yes. But James says, God's perfect law gives us freedom. See, if you stop to think about it, which I did, we should be thankful that we've got good roadworks, That we don't drive off into potholes or repairs or collide with oncoming traffic because it's not coned off. We can drive safely and freely despite, because of these restrictions, we should even be thankful that someone is repairing our motorways. Now, In an ideal world, there would be repair-free motorways. But we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a fallen world in which repairs are necessary and God's law is for our good. Through obeying God's law, we experience freedom, the freedom we enjoy, freedom to live within the perfect bounds that God has set for our good. And not only that, we experience God's favourable blessing as we live the life that pleases God. He says he will be blessed. If you keep looking in God's law intently, you'll be blessed in what you do. So, nearly through the first half, and this is longer because these verses are longer. Don't get worried. We've got two verses to come after this. But I thought it would be helpful just to pause at this moment and ask a couple of questions. About are we really humbly accepting God's word and continuously obeying it? Simple test. We're not going to do this, but it might be helpful to go home and do it. If I was to go round Charlotte Chapel this morning, and many of us profess to be followers of Jesus, lovers of his word, two practical questions. What is the most recent issue that God has spoken to you about when you looked into the mirror? What was it you saw that you needed to put right? If you can't think of it, then either you're perfect, and I'd love to meet you afterwards, or... You've not been looking recently, or you've not been looking intently. Here's the second question What is the most recent change that has taken place in your life as a result of doing that? So you can look in the mirror and see what he's doing, but what have you changed? What is it you're working on? What are the areas in your life that God is focusing on at this time and saying, There's an area you need to sort out? Or are we deceiving ourselves? Don't merely listen to the word. So deceive yourselves, do what it says. James 1.22 If we do what it says, here's the proof. The proof is seen in your life. So James switches from faith, the response God expects, to works, the religion that God accepts, verses 26 and 27. The word religion is is kind of one of those neutral kind of negative words, isn't it? It's not kind of too popular. Remember years ago, a famous evangelist saying. I wouldn't cross the street to tell anyone about religion, but I'd walk across the country on my knees on broken glass if it was to tell people about Jesus Christ. I understand the sentiment, what he's saying, but notice here that James uses this interesting word, religion. So you need to understand, what does the word religion mean here? What's he talking about? Well, religion here means the specific outworking of what you believe. The visible evidence of what you believe the specific ways in which a person's faith is expressed in action. Let me give you a very extreme example, but it came home to me very forcibly this week. You may have seen on the news an interview with a man in chains in Afghanistan who was arrested before he could blow himself up with a suicide bomb. And the interviewer asked him, why were you prepared to do this? And he said absolutely clearly, as far as you can tell from the interpretation, he said, I did it because of my religion. I am obeying the command of the Quran. And as a good Muslim, this is what I should do. Now, I fully appreciate that many Muslims would totally disagree. Far few would ever want to do the kind of thing he did. But, his religion, what he believed, was expressed in the action he took. So, he thought that this was the kind of life that pleased God. Whatever you think about it, I use it as an illustration. So, what kind of things please God? How can you be sure that blowing yourself up and other people is not what pleases God? Well, the answer for the Christian is this. The religion that God accepts is that which he has made clear in his word. That's why you humbly accept it and continuously obey it. You humbly accept God's word because continuously, at times and increasingly in our society, what God says is very politically unacceptable. You continuously obey it by looking carefully in it because it is capable and has been of misunderstanding and misapplication. So back to practicalities. What is the religion that God accepts? What should be evident in our lives... As a result of our response to what God has said. What are the kind of things that should be seen in our lives? Well, James focuses here on three areas in which our religion should be evident. He's saying, if you're the person who responds to God's word, it should be seen in these three areas. Now, this is not an exclusive list. There are lots of other things. He chooses these, actually, because they were particular issues for the people he's writing to. And each one of them he picks upon later in the series, and we'll try and do that, God willing, later in our series. So, let's touch on them very briefly. And interestingly, I wonder if I said to you, what are the three things, the mark of a really keen Christian, what are the three things you'd see in their lives that would mark them out as being those who receive God's word and apply it? I don't think many of us have chosen the first one. He looks at the area of the tongue. If anyone considers himself religious, yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, his religion is worthless. Picture again, it's obvious. The rein, of course, is used for a horse. Later on in chapter 3, verse 3, he talks about the bit and bridle and the whole theme of the tongue. We'll look at it in more detail. But he's talking about restraining ourselves. And he's saying the part of your life that you need to restrain is your tongue. It doesn't mean tongue eating, it means tongue is a, a picture of speaking. So the challenge here is, am I keeping a tight rein on what I say? Or do I suffer from foot and mouth disease? Every time I open my mouth, I put my foot in it. Do I say things without thinking? And later regret that I spoke so hastily? Do my words heal others or hurt others? Do my words build others up or tear them down? Do my words depress and discourage or encourage others? James says, God's word says, if you have no control of your tongue, then you're fooling yourself if you think you're a religious person. Your religion is worthless. It means empty, meaningless. Now, this doesn't mean that you never open your mouth and put your foot in it, Thankfully. What it means is that we become, incre- as we keep obeying and responding to God's word, we, co- we become increasingly self-controlled in the area of speech. We become more aware of what we say might hurt someone. We learn to control our tongue. How do you do it? By continuously accepting God's word and putting it into practice, and you'll learn to be more controlled in what you say. So, here's the first area. But it's not re- limited to that. He then begins to talk about other people. He says, here's a second area where you should see real religion at work. In relation to the helpless, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's a theme that's a constant refrain in the Old Testament. The prophets berated God's people, not only for ignoring orphans and widows, but for exploiting them. And the society in which James is writing made little or no provision for widows or orphans. There was no social security net to help them. They could be vulnerable and exploited. And our society may make more provision, but there are still people who slip through the net. There are many other parts of the world. We sang about it in our song and during the offering. But James says, God passionately concerns, is compassionately concerned about such people. Why? Because he's a father. The father some of us never knew far better even than the best father some of us experienced, which was pretty good. He's the perfect father and this is his father's heart of concern for our world. So how is his father's heart expressed towards the helpless? By the members of the family who express the father's love in the way they care for needy people. So here's the second challenge. Am I demonstrating the father's love to the needy? And his commentary on James Douglas Moo writes... One test of pure religion, therefore, is the degree to which we extend aid to the helpless in our world, whether they be widows or orphans, immigrants trying to adjust to a new life, there's a challenge today, the impoverished third world dwellers, the handicapped or the homeless. Finally, should we think that our religion means total immersion in the world? James counterbalances it with a final thing. He talks about our relationship with the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, one, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. By the world here, of course, James doesn't mean the physical world. He means the world that is in rebellion against God. And he says, you need to keep yourself spotless, because it's a dirty world we live in, morally. It's in rebellion against God, And what you need to do is make sure you're not polluted by it. You're not stained by it. Now, of course, again, this is a reflection of God's character. The one word that describes God above all else is holy. H-O-L-Y. It means separate, different, distinctive. And what God says to his people in the Old Testament, Leviticus eleven forty four, New Testament, quoting it, 1 Peter 1, 16, God says, be holy as I am holy. So the question, the challenge, the final challenge is this, am I living a holy life? One time Christians were criticised for being so heavenly minded they were of no earthly use. Today the pendulum is swinging completely the other way. And most of us are so earthly minded we're of no heavenly use. As a church, our our motto is to be conspicuous for Christ. Is it just a slogan? Our vision statement is we want to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and the message of Christ. Is it just a vision statement? Or are we distinctive? Are we different? Are we holy? The life that pleases God is a holy life. Almost finished and our time has gone. Once more this morning, as we do every time, with God's help, we have looked into the mirror. The mirror, looking into the mirror, God's word. The key issue is What do we do next? You've only got two choices. Will I forget it? Or will I act upon it? Only if I act upon what God has said to me will I increasingly live the life that pleases God. Let's pray together.